Thank you, Rudy. It was a little hot this week, wasn't it? Maybe that's just an understatement. I always feel like it's cliche to talk about the weather, but when you're 38 degrees outside in Edmonton, it's, um, it's historic heat. We, uh, so my family, because of the heat, we're like, what are we going to do this week? I have two young kids. My youngest is only seven months old. My other daughter is just about to turn three. And so we came up with this fantastic idea. Like, let's escape the heat. Let's find a, an affordable hotel in Edmonton that has a pool. We can enjoy the air conditioning and we'll sleep really, really well. And our daughter will be able to take in the fun of this pool and, and have this whole experience. And so off we go. We find a, a, an affordable hotel. We, we check in. We get into the hotel. And of course, it's, I think it was Canada Day. So the restrictions had just left, lifted. And this place is packed. The pool is just packed. So we're a little disappointed with what's going on there. And not only that, but the pool is kind of gross. I've been in a hotel where the fire alarm's gone off, so don't travel with us. Um, and in the past, when our fire alarm goes off, it's like, okay, hey, grab the passports, grab your wallet, grab your phone, get out of the room. But I'm like, we got young kids. I'm like, grab the car seat, grab this, grab that. We're like freaking out. Luckily, we're on the main floor. But we get out of the hotel. The fire trucks come. My daughter thinks that this is amazing. She's excited about the fire engines and all these things. Eventually, we get back inside. We actually had the conversation. Like, should we just go home? We're like, well, Libby really wants to swim in the morning. So let's, we'll stay the night. So we settle back in, get the kids back to sleep, fall asleep. An hour later, I'm not making this up, right? An hour later, someone tries to get into our room. So like the door's shaking. And we're like, we jolted awake. We're horrified. What is going on? I, I run to like the little peephole. I'm like looking out. Now I think what happened is someone thought they were on the wrong floor, something like this. But we call the front desk. We let them know what's happening. But obviously we both feel pretty shook up, right? And we're, we're sad that like, man, we were supposed to have this great sleep in the hotel. Now it's been interrupted on two different occasions. Again, we have a conversation with one another. Should we just go home? It's 2.30 in the morning. Our kids are both sleeping. And we're like, Libby really wants to swim. So we kind of grin and bear it, let the adrenaline cool off a bit, fall back asleep. We wake up, um, we have a cold, hot breakfast, if you know what I mean, which wasn't too great. Um, and then get ready to go swimming. I take Libby down the hall to the pool. We get into the, onto the pool deck, and there's a guy there. He's like, sorry, the pool is closed. My three-year-old daughter's face just sunk, right? And here I am, like, sorry, kid, like, pick her up and carry her back to her, our room. And she's like, Dad, why is the pool closed? And she's full of sadness. I grin and bear it. So this was our fantastic idea to beat the heat, right? Such a great experience, a good sleep, lots of fun. We've been in a series called Everyday Faith. And the whole idea around everyday faith is this recognition that, you know, there's parts of our lives that we think are overly spiritual. I come to church on Sunday, I read my Bible, I pray. But then there's other parts of my life that I might not think are that spiritual or important or significant. And it's very easy for me to look at this experience at the hotel and be like, well, that is not in any way a spiritual experience, right? This is just like bad luck. This is terrible circumstance. This is a frustrating reality. These are 21st century problems type of thing. God has nothing to do with this. But something happened when I was walking down the hall with my little three-year-old daughter. In all of her disappointment, 
this deflated body against me, her head resting in my shoulders, realizing that, man, this is exactly what God invites us to as his children. When we go through disappointment in our lives, it's so easy for us to think that there's certain things in our life that is off bounds to God, that God doesn't really care. That, man, he's God. He's ruling the universe. He doesn't care that the pool is dirty, the potatoes are cold, and the fire alarm is going off at the hotel, right? I don't think that's what the Bible shows us. I think the Bible shows us a picture of a God who's actually incredibly invested in our everyday realities. I think that the Bible shows us a God whose spirit is so intertwined with our lives that he is as present in that hotel room in our frustration of our experience as he is at church on a Sunday morning. And it's the integration of these two things that I believe that we as Christians need to labor towards. If you're just checking out faith, these are the things that we look forward to. Is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just some sort of truth that, you know, when I die I get to go to heaven. It's not simply what it's about. Rather, it's this integration of living life with God, living an abundant life, experiencing our purpose with Him. I was raised in a household where I was taught that it is rude to ask a woman her age or to ask someone how much money they made, right? And these are important skills to teach our kids, but I wonder if that type of a thing has crossed over into my relationship with God and perhaps into yours as well. That there are elements of our lives that we appropriately take to God, but then there's other elements of our lives that we should not take to God. And when we have this type of divide going on, I want to propose to us that it is very difficult to live an everyday faith. Incredibly difficult. And when we have this type of divide in our lives, that there's things that are appropriate for God and things that are inappropriate for God, not only is it difficult for us to live an everyday faith, but we become very disappointed in God. (laughs) So we start living with this, well, where is God? Does he even care? He wasn't there when I needed him. Well, David was very good at expressing his emotions. David was very good at not letting a moment pass by without dealing with what was going on inside of his heart. We see this not only in the narratives that we've already covered, but also in the book of Psalms, where over and over again we get a glimpse into David's prayer journal, where we see a man who was so wholehearted before God. All of his joy, all of his pain, all of his frustration, he just laid it out. So I want us to unpack the story that we had read for us this morning. I'm going to highlight a couple of little details for us as we seek to understand the books of 1 and 2 Samuel a little bit better. But then I want to zoom in onto how David handled the news that Saul had died and what he invites the community of Israel to do in light of that event. Well, if you've been tracking with us, we've mostly, well, we have entirely been in the book of 1 Samuel. We're now turning the page into 2 Samuel. Most commentators agree that the break between 1 and 2 Samuel is appropriate, but they want us to pay attention to the literary unit that is 1 Samuel chapter 16 to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Of course, you all remember what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 16, right? That's where David was anointed. That's where we began our series. And the the literary grouping between 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 4 deals with the rise of King David. So it's important for us to look at it as a singular unit, even though we have the book division between the two. So it's something to pay attention to. And what's happened between the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel is Saul has died. And if you're a careful reader of Scripture, this should be an incredibly important moment, right? Now why is that? 
Well, for the last several chapters, David has been fleeing for his life from Saul. Not only has he been fleeing from his life, but he decided to settle down in enemy territory to avoid King Saul. David is the rightfully anointed king, God's chosen king, the one who's going to succeed Saul. And Saul's been giving David a really hard time. So as a reader of the text, we should get very excited, if we're on David's team, at the passing of Saul. It's like, okay, here we go. It's David's moment. But as we look at the story, we see that this is not what happens. An Amalekite arrives to Ziglag, where David and his men are no doubt busy putting things back together after dealing with the Amalekite raiders that had come in and and pillaged their city. Pastor Ken told us last week how David responded to that event. You can go back and listen to that message um, if you would like. It's fantastic. But at this point, as David and his men are kind of resetting things up, a messenger comes with this news that, that Saul has now passed. Not only does he tell David that Saul has passed, but he presents David with the crown and the armlet of King Saul as evidence. Now, put yourself in the Amalekites' shoes. Here you are arriving to King David. Our text tells us that he, he was humble before the king, he, that he bowed down, bef- not before the king, before David, right? He bowed down before David. He knew who David was. He understood who David was. So here comes this Amalekite thinking he is bringing really good news to King David. How does David respond to this good news? Not so good. <laughs> David tears his clothes in grief. His men tear his clothes. This isn't a custom that we have in our day and age. You don't see people tearing their clothes on street corners anymore. But this, this whole idea was this outward symbol of what was going on inside of a person. Like a broken heart. It was, it was a symbol of grief. A custom to show affliction. And I can only imagine the awkward feeling of the Amalekite. Looking at this event unfold and suddenly they're like, wait, what? You're, you're grieving? You're, you're tearing your clothes? The Amalekite likely would have anticipated that in that moment, maybe David and his men started a parade or figured out the best way to strategically make David the king of all of Israel because now Saul is dead. But that is not what happens. And not only is this an awkward moment for the Amalekite, but as he has confessed He was the one who put away with Saul. He was the one who actually killed him. Now what's interesting about this, uh, if you've paid attention, the end of 1 Samuel and the the beginning of 2 Samuel, the events recorded seem to differ. Because at the end of 1 Samuel, it says that Saul fell upon his sword and killed himself. So we look at the Amalekite and he seems to be an opportunist. Thinking that if he presents himself as the one who killed Saul, he'll be worthy of honor. But the only honor he receives is that his life is taken from him. Now this is important for us to note because David must not be found guilty for killing King Saul. This is incredibly important throughout the book of 1 Samuel. David could not be found guilty as somehow putting in effort to advance himself to the throne. And so the decisive action of David to kill the Amalekite would have demonstrated David's verdict towards anyone, including himself, who were to try to kill the king. In this, David frees himself from any type of guilt of being responsible for Saul's death. 
In this response, David displays his loyalty, his respect, and his admiration to King Saul and his best friend, Jonathan. And not only did David tear his clothes and punish the Amalekite, but David also writes a lament for this occasion. This lament that he writes communicates the events. It speaks of the shamefulness of these events. It pays tribute to Saul and Jonathan. And it is a call to all of Israel to mourn what has happened. Friends, through this and other narratives of David, as well as the Psalms, we see in David someone who lived wholeheartedly before God. Someone who understood this everyday faith reality. David just heard that his best friend had passed away. And David allowed himself space before God and others to deal with these hard emotions. To deal with these difficult circumstances. He dealt with what was going on in his own heart. And I believe that the invitation in these these narratives, the invitation we see in the Psalms through various different lament Psalms, is an invitation for us similarly to live wholeheartedly before God. Dealing rightly with God with our questions, with our grief, and with our emotions. So what is a lament? A lament Psalm is a song of mourning or sorrow. It's about personal sorrow or national sorrow. It's about grief. It's about laying out before God one's own depression, anxiety, guilt with sin. The reality of a lament is that it is calling things out for what they are and speaking honestly about life's limits. It's recognizing the truth of what is and not trying to cover it up in any way. Because of this, psalms are actually quite jarring and off-putting. When we read the psalms and we come across a psalm of lament, we're like, whoa, David, calm down. That's some, that's some honest expression. That's some, that's some sharp emotion. But that there is the purpose of them. And they're incredibly common in Scripture. About 70% of the psalms contain lament. 70%. And they're jarring and off-putting. Walter Brueggemann, writing about lament psalms, writes that the prospect of public grief is a scarce practice in our society, where we are so engaged in self-deception, pretending that everything is all right. Underneath that propaganda, however, we are deeply troubled. We're a deeply troubled community with a great deal of unprocessed public hurt. We have no easy way to process our hurt. But this poem, and he's referring to the poem in 2 Samuel chapter 1, is a model. I think I have that quote um, on the PowerPoint for us, John, if you want to put that up for everyone to read. But what Walter Brueggemann is getting at here is that lament psalms help us to avoid letting difficult moments pass by. Because that's so often our temptation, isn't it? When life gives us difficulty... And we just want to move on to better, happier emotions and not feel depressed, not feel anxious, not feel worried or hurt or broken in any way, shape, or form. But when we don't deal with our emotions properly, I want to propose to us that it keeps them from actually going away. 
And when I look at the story of 2 Samuel chapter 1, I see in David the great strength of not letting a difficult moment pass by. And this is contrasted so heavily to the Amalekite, who seems to care very little for grief or sorrow or mourning. But rather, he is so focused on opportunity and getting ahead that he doesn't take even a moment to grieve. So what can we learn from lament psalms? I think the first thing we learn is that lament psalms give us words. Lament psalms give us words. Have you ever experienced something in life that has left you speechless? Sometimes we go through things and events in life that knock the words out of us. We don't know what to say. We feel grieved, we feel confused, we feel hurt and broken, but we don't have words to communicate our emotions. These pre-written prayers and words of lament give us the tools that we need to let the emotions out. Sometimes we wonder what to do in times of hurt and pain. And we're so caught up in wondering what to do that we end up doing nothing. But friends, we can begin in Scripture. We can begin in, in the Psalms. We can begin by looking at these historic songs and words as a means by which to express what is going on in our own hearts. Because in Scripture, we find the words that we need. An application for this is to be people who pray the Scriptures. In our equip class, which is our discipleship classes that we teach here at TCC, we talk about the importance of praying Scripture. That all of our prayers need to begin in God's Word. That's where it starts. And I, what I love about that is that Scripture speaks to every emotion. I want to use Psalm 13 as a, a quick example for this. We can put that up on the slide. But Psalm 13 is a, a commonly uh, well-known lament psalm that we come across pretty quickly in the Psalms. I think we have it there, yeah. And here David is expressing to God th- these questions and these doubts, these moments of confusion. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Can you relate to this expression of David? Can you relate to these words? God, where are you? God, what is going on in my world? What is going on with this circumstance? Why am I going through this difficulty? This is exactly what my three-year-old daughter said to me when we found out the pool was closed. (laughs) Daddy, why is the pool closed? Her heart was broken. And she rightfully rested her head on my shoulder and processed that emotion. David here with God processing these emotions. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. What I love about many of the lament psalms is that when we go to God honestly with our emotions and our brokenness and our hurt and our pain, oftentimes it reorients us. It helps us to see our circumstances in a different light. And this is what happens in Psalm 13 where David's perspective goes from his circumstances and he fixes it on God and he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt 
bountifully with me. Friends, lament psalms give us words. Throughout the psalms, we can read psalms that deal with the issue of anger before God, where we could say, but now you have rejected and humbled us, God. I'm angry about that. We have psalms that speak to grief. Psalm 31, be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. There's psalms that speak to feeling abandoned. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, oh my God. Psalms that deal with repentance. When we feel so overwhelmed with the sin and the brokenness in our own life, we can pray, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And of course, so many psalms that speak of joy and happiness, rejoicing in the the glories of God at work in our lives. So friends, we rightfully pray these ancient words. So not only does Lament Psalms give us words, but Lament Psalms also give our community words. Verse 18 of 2 Samuel chapter 1, David commands that the lament that he writes to be learned by all of Israel. This is a reflection of the command we have in Scripture to be people who mourn with those who mourn. Well, how do we mourn with those who mourn? In the context of 2 Samuel, it's by sharing words of pain and grief and sorrow. That those who are lamenting, those who are hurting, it's coming alongside of them and joining together and praying those words back to God. Sitting with them in those moments. Sitting with them in those difficult emotions. Unfortunately, I don't think we're very good at this as a community. But as a community, we must not rush past issues that bring us grief. It's been interesting in uh, the world of worship music over the last few years. A lot of different artists are picking up on this and are starting to write songs of lament for the church. Because we just don't have them. We don't sing them. And some of you might be familiar with uh, singer, songwriter, worship leader Brian Dirksen, who wrote, he put to melody the, the Psalm 13 that we read together here. Um, and when he originally wrote that song, his, his music publisher did not want to put the song on his CD. They said, Brian, no way. People don't want this type of music. People don't want a song of questioning and doubting God, so we shouldn't put it on your record. And he's like, it's in the Bible. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm singing scripture. And he fought with his publishing company to put this song on the CD. And sure enough, the song was so well-received Because in it, people found words that expressed what was going on in their own hearts. So we as a community need to grieve. And I think about this moment in Canada's history, the revealing of the magnitude of horror which unfolded at the residential schools. These events need to bring us to a place of lament. A place where we're calling out to God, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will our indigenous people suffer? How long, O Lord, will justice not happen in these circumstances? And I don't personally know the best response to this situation, but I do know that the worst response is for me to glance past it, for me to keep scrolling, for me to remain ignorant or to keep myself from lament or grief. So friends, we rightfully take all of the news 
All that the news wells up within us and we bring it to God. Finally, I think that lament psalms help us to learn that no emotion is off bounds before God. No emotion is off bounds before God. My wife and I, in 2013, we wrote and recorded um, a bunch of songs and, and we put out a CD and obviously none of them made the, the top charts because none of you have heard of it before. Um, but when we released our CD, we did two different CD release concerts, one in Edmonton and one in Calgary. And the one in Edmonton, uh, a new believer came up to me and wanted to talk to me about one of the songs. And um, I, I had written a type of lament song. And the song was titled, Do You Have the Answers? And the verse went like, um, do you have the answers? Do you hear my cry? When the world around me shatters, will you be standing by my side? And the chorus kind of went to a point where it said, Lord, I need to know that you're at work in my life. I need to know that everything will be all right. And this new believer came up to me and he said, I had no idea that Christians doubted God. I had no idea that Christians had questions. And I was grieved by this response because his perspective of the faith community was that we had everything all together. That our lives were just perfect. That we didn't have any doubt. That we didn't have any questions for God. But friends, when I read scripture, David had a lot of questions for God. And this is something I had to work out for myself as I matured in my faith Because there was a time where I thought that it was inappropriate to doubt. That it was inappropriate to question. There was a time in my life with Jesus that I didn't think that my emotions were rightfully brought before God. And I certainly didn't think that my sin was brought before God because that just filled me with shame. But as we read scripture, we see that none of these things are off bounds. God is bigger than our questions. So we rightfully bring our questions, our doubt, our confusion. We bring our sin. We bring our temptations. We bring our frustrations and our angers, our worry, our anxiety, and our depression. We bring all of it to God and we say, here God, here is me. I know it's not pretty. I know it's not cleaned up. I know it does not feel very appropriate. But here I am in all of my brokenness, my hurt. My pain. And do you know what? God receives you in that moment. He embraces you in that moment. If you are questioning God, if you are struggling in your faith, if if you have children in your life or grandchildren who are struggling with, with questions about their faith, keep encouraging them to question. Keep encouraging them to take it to God. Because the problem is when we don't take those things to God, And we go somewhere else with them. This past week, I turned on our air conditioning unit in our bedroom, and I walked out of the room to let the room cool off. I think the room was like 35 degrees or something when I left. And I came back into the room, and the room was like 41 degrees. And this was confusing to me, because my air conditioning unit was running. But the air conditioning unit had a, a hot air in and out on the back. I'm not yet. So it was the input and the output. The output's supposed to go out the window, right? And it was going out the window, but it had fallen into the room. And so while the air conditioning unit was blowing cold air into the room, it was also blowing hot air into the room at the same time. It actually raised the temperature of our bedroom. And this got to me thinking about this whole reality of emotions. (laughs) The hot air had nowhere to go. So it just kept filling up the room. 
Nothing got better. And I think about my own pain in my life, my own temptations with sin, my own doubt. When I don't take those things to God, it's like that hot air just circulating in the room. My inner track, my inner world just keeps stewing over these issues and it can go on for weeks and months and years. But when I take that hot air output and I put it back where it belongs, suddenly the room cools off, right? Go figure. And I think it's the same thing in our relationship with God. When we rightfully bring Him all of our emotions, all of the doubt, all the pain, all the hurt, all of this stuff, it's, it's, we're putting it where it's supposed to go. And we let God deal with it as He will. We need to avoid the temptation to internalize and run laps in our own head. Because while we do that, Jesus is standing, inviting, and calling us to come. Friends, God is bigger than our questions. He can handle them. God can take our anger, our frustration, our hurt, and our pain. Jesus himself demonstrated for us a complexity of emotions. Jesus grieved the passing of his friend Lazarus. Jesus sweat drops of blood in the garden. I hope you hear the application of this message is into a certain type of prayerfulness. A wholehearted type of prayer. As well as the invitation to allow ourselves to grieve with those who are grieving. To take up lament for the hurt and the pain that we see in our world. For some of us, the first steps in this is simply vulnerability. It's learning to be honest with God. Coming before Him and saying, this is what's going on in my heart. Allowing ourselves to feel... The next step from vulnerability is being intentional to actually carve out that time and space to come before God with what's going on in our hearts. For others, maybe the next step in this is is learning to do what David did and and get creative with our pain and our hurt and to to write out our own lament, to take pen to paper and take time to write out what's going on in our hearts. Living life closed off from our inner world, our inner thoughts and emotions is not a means by which we experience the everyday faith. So we need to hear our Heavenly Father ask us with total sincerity this morning, how are you? How are you? What's going on in your inner world? Well, this morning we turn to communion. We turn our hearts to remember what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And as we prepare for communion, if some of you have not yet received the communion elements, just encourage you to maybe raise a hand and one of our ushers will make sure you get uh, get a communion packet. But in, in anticipation for Jesus' coming, Isaiah writes about Jesus that he was acquainted with grief. From the cross, we know that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The picture of the cross is one that invites us to realize that we are actually not forsaken. Through the cross, God reaches out to us, to our every situation, to our every experience. Through the cross, God reaches out to our bliss and our suffering, to our joy and our pain, to our gladness and our worry, to our grief and our contentment.
So we want to remember the cross today. Let's take a moment to thank Jesus for these elements and just for the reality of what we've learned from first, Second Samuel chapter 1. Father God, we thank you that in our relationship with you, no emotion is off bounds. No hurt, no pain, no brokenness. No joy, no delight. None of it should be kept from you. And Father, we praise you for the cross through which you reached out to humanity and made a way for this relationship to be established. Lord, that we may be able to communicate with you in these ways. And God, thank you for your spirit that meets us in these places. And Lord, even now as we take communion, Lord, I pray for us as a community that as we remember the suffering of Jesus, Lord, we remember that he is not unfamiliar with suffering and pain. And so, Father, we thank you for the bread and the cup, what it invites us to remember. We pray that you would bless it this morning. And Lord, may it do a work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink this together. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite the worship team to join me on the platform. Let's just take a moment together. Father God, we thank you for for the cross. Lord, and at the foot of the cross, God, we come this morning remembering you, Jesus, our Savior who made a way. So Lord, may we hear you ask that question of us, that how are you? And Lord, may we readily bring to you all that is going on in our hearts, that which is good, that which is bad, that which is a delight, and that which maybe brings pain or sorrow or grief. And Lord, thank you that as we come to the cross, we don't come alone. But we come together. 
We praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.